Well, let's return to our Sunday morning series through the book of Genesis by going to Genesis chapter 3. With this being our 12th week now in this chapter, there's no way we can recap all that we've covered so far, but we're now at the place where sin has entered the world. God is now giving the consequences. We need to understand that while we can pick our sins, we cannot choose our consequences. Off the top of my head, there's only been one instance where a man was allowed to choose his consequences, but even those consequences were within God's choices. You may recall David numbered the people. It was wrong to do so. He had a lapse of faith. By numbering his armor, the Lord sent the prophet Gad to him and said, choose either seven years of famine or three months of fleeing before the enemy or three days of pestilence. And that's not going to happen to us. We're not going to get to choose. So you can choose your sin, but we have to understand God will decide the consequence. Many today are praying for crop failure, myself included. And I just ask for God's mercy. Over the last two weeks of study, we've considered the curse which is now upon the serpent and Satan. And last time we covered the first mention of the gospel in our Bible in Genesis 3.15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. That was a new word for me. I got a new word for you this week. So God put Satan on notice. Your days are numbered. God made the announcement that the promised seed would arrive one day. And while Satan would bruise Christ's feet, our Lord would crush Satan's head. It took 4,000 years for that promise to come to pass. It's been 2,000 years since it was fulfilled. And for those of us in Christ today... We are now more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Because greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. And we can say, thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say, hallelujah, what a Savior. Such a blessing to be in Christ today. Amen. Amen. Well, we certainly have something to shout about in the curse that God placed upon the serpent and Satan found in verses 14 and 15, but today as we move to verses 16 through 19, we are humbled by the curse that God has placed upon the woman, the man, and creation. We'll begin today at Genesis chapter 3 by reading verses 14 through 19. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go. And thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. 
In reading these verses, in particular verses 16 through 19, we are struck with the reality that we are now living in a fallen world. What we are experiencing today is not how God created everything. And the fact is, many of life's difficult questions about God can be answered right here in this chapter. Why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow children to die? Why would a loving God allow hardships? It's all because mankind chose to rebel against God in sin. When God was done creating everything, He stepped back, He looked over it all and said, It is very good. It was perfect. God did not create the mess that we are in today. We did. We are reaping the consequences of our sin. God gifted us with a free will. Thank God He did. I don't care what the Calvinists teach you. We have a free will to choose whether we will accept or reject God. He gave us that free will, but through the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, we all have willingly rejected our Creator and His Word. Now we all live under the penalty of our sinful choice that happened all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And while a life in Christ will be blessed with joy and peace. Amen. Look, I had 19 hours of preaching last week. Let's pretend like church is full. Listen, a life in Christ will be blessed with joy and peace. But even with all of God's mercy and grace that we, we have bestowed upon us... None of us here this morning are going to be able to escape the curse that God has placed upon our natural life. You cannot get away from the consequence of sin. We find in verse 16, God now turns His attention to the woman. And He says, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. God begins by saying, I will greatly multiply. The Hebrew word here for greatly and multiply are identical. Which means God is saying this, in multiplying I will multiply. God is giving us the certainty of this verse. This will happen. And what God says He will greatly multiply is thy sorrow and thy conception. And i got to be honest with you, it took me a long while to get peace about why it says, and thy conception. That word and was throwing me off. Does this mean that after sin, women would conceive more? Well, I don't see why that would be a curse, because God said before the fall, be fruitful and multiply. So that wasn't making sense to me. Not to mention, Psalm 127.3 tells us, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. So what is this saying here at the beginning of this verse? Well, I learned a new word. According to the 17th century commentator Matthew Poole, the phrase, thy sorrow and thy conception is what's called a hendiatus. Come on now. Now now look, if I'm the only one that's never heard of that before, don't come and tell me. I don't want to feel even more uneducated than I already do, amen? 
A hendiadus, or as it used to be called, a hendiaduo, is a figure of speech that is used for emphasis. It is the substitution of a conjunction for a subordination. Uh, what? <laughs> uh, what does that mean? Since that didn't help much, I went to Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary, and he told me it is when two nouns are used instead of a noun and an adjective. Again, that didn't help me much either. Someone like me. Merriam-Webster, the, the modern di dictionary, defined it as an expression of an idea by the use of usually two independent words connected by and, such as nice and warm, instead of the usual combination of independent word and its modifier, such as nicely warm. All right, now we're getting somewhere. Adrian's laughing because we sat on the balcony of our, of our hotel in Castle Rock trying to figure this out while the teens, while the, the, the camp workers were suffering for Jesus. We were looking at the Rocky Mountains. To, all right. Um, <laughs> so an example of a hendiadus would be he left despite the rain and weather instead of he left despite the rainy weather. So, look, this is for me. Just deal with it, okay? So let's apply this, this idea to this passage. I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. What is he saying? I will greatly multiply thy sorrowful conception. Boom. Hendiatus. I wonder what the churches across town are talking about today. They aren't substituting conjunctions for subordinations. They're probably using nouns and adjectives. Listen, you don't get this at the church down the road. <laughs> now, ultimately, we get the meaning simply by what follows. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. The word sorrow means painful toil or pangs. Is also translated as grievous and labor. In other words, ladies, childbearing is going to seriously hurt. And I got to tell you, I don't understand why any woman feels like she has anything to prove to a man. I mean, ladies, according to the Bible, you've got the market on pain. <laughs> what do you have left to prove? Psalm 48.6 Fear took hold upon them there, and pain as of a woman in travail. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 and 3, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, that's His wrath, the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them, shall come upon them as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. When God describes great pain, when God describes the terribleness of the day of His wrath, He uses the illustration of a pregnant woman in pain, laboring to bring forth a child. I was in the delivery room and all four of my children were born, and I watched as my wife gave birth to all of our children with no pain medicine. And I could not imagine the pain she was in. I had heard enough stupid testimonies from people to know, just keep my mouth shut. Let me give you an example. My good friend, Zach Costilla, 
his dear wife is in labor and he's starting to nod off, she says something to him and he says, well, at least you have the pain to keep you awake. I knew I'm not saying a word. That woman's in pain just... And sure enough, when Sydney was born, it was after a mid-shift. So I'd already been up all night and I'm just... Okay, don't, don't be Zach. Don't, don't be Zach. <laughs> I was also there when my mom gave birth to me with no medicine as well. You know, these days people are trying to get around the curse. Pain medication in the delivery room. But it really wasn't until the last century that women began getting epidurals during delivery. And... I'm saying that to tell you, I think today we tend to lose sight of the seriousness and the sad reality and the truth of Genesis 3.16 because of the miracle of modern medicine. I think many take for granted how true this verse is, even in our day still. It is estimated over 800 women worldwide die every day because of pregnancy complications. This is after a 44% decline in maternal mortality since 1990. According to the the United Nations Population Fund 2017 report, about every two minutes a woman dies because of complications due to childbirth or pregnancy. For every woman who dies, there are about 20 to 30 women who experience injury, infection, or other birth or pregnancy-related complications. The complications and deaths are still to this day very high in areas of our world where there's a lack of quality medical care. Sub-Saharan Africa is the leading um, place in our world for complications and death with pregnancies. And, and I, I don't want to stir up any bad memories, but I, I want to show you just how this curse is still affecting humanity. Every year worldwide, 23 million pregnancies will end in a miscarriage. Every 40, 44, every minute. I've got a brother in heaven that I'm looking forward to meeting one day. According to the March of Dimes in America, this is in America, more than 500,000 pregnancies end in the first 20 weeks. Approximately 26,000 end in stillbirth. That's after 20 weeks. Approximately 19,000 end in, nine, in infant death during the first month and approximately 39,000 end in infant death during the first year. In sorrow, thou shalt bring forth thy children. When Luke was born, I was watching as his heart rate kept dropping, and it kept dropping, and it kept dropping. And I wasn't going to say a word to Adrian. She had other things going on, amen? And I remember as soon as Luke was born, the doctor took the cord and unwrapped it from around his neck, And they rushed him out to the NICU. Still tending to Adrian in the room. And if you've been in the delivery room, you understand how it's not a guarantee to have a healthy birth, to have a healthy mom, to have a healthy baby. A lot of things can go wrong. It's almost amazing to consider that just 100 years ago and earlier, on average, it is estimated that 27% of newborns died within the first year. And 46% died before they reached adulthood, which they consider 15 years of age or about the time of puberty. 
In other words, around a quarter died in the first year of their life, and around a half died before the age of 15. As I was preparing this, I was reminded of Abraham Lincoln's family. I remember hearing some things, and here's, here's some things about his family. Lincoln's mother died from milk sickness when he was nine. His brother died in infancy. His sister died while giving birth to a stillborn son. His dad remarried a woman who had been widowed. Lincoln's first romantic interest was a lady named Ann Rutledge, and she died from what they believe was typhoid fever. He eventually married Mary Todd, and they had four sons together, and only their first son, Robert, lived to adulthood. He ended up living just a few days shy of 83. But their second son, Eddie, was almost four when he died, most likely of tuberculosis. Lincoln's third son, William, died at the age of 11 of a fever while at the White House. And the youngest son, Thomas, died of heart failure at the age of 18 in 1871. And we hear things like that today and we think how tragic, and it is. But that was not unique to the Lincolns. That was commonplace back then. And I'm just saying the punishment of Genesis 3.16 is real. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Just consider the pain that women go through. It's to a greater degree than any other of God's creation. I've seen as a calf's been born, they spend 30 minutes to two hours and lick the thing clean and they're on their way. <laughs> Thankfully, we don't do the licking the clean part. Yeah. Sydney came out like, do you want to hold her not till you clean that thing up? <laughs> All right, anyway, um, my wife's going to give me the cut it sign here any second. But women going through such extreme pain is unique to creation. And it can be for no other reason than God's word is true. This is why God uses birthing terminology to describe extreme pain. John Gill wrote this, with many severe pangs and sharp pains which are so very acute that great tribulations and afflictions are often in Scripture set forth by them. In other words, that's how God describes tribulation and affliction. It's going to be like a woman in travail. Matthew Henry wrote, The pains of childbearing are the effect of sin. Every pang and every groan of the travailing woman speak aloud the fatal consequences of sin. This comes of eating the forbidden fruit. And many believe that this verse includes the raising of children, the pain and the heartache that's involved there. And if you've raised children, you know of the sorrows that are involved along the way. If you're born into this world, amen, that's all of you. Amen. Thank you, Brett. If you're born into this world, and if you are able and your mother's still living, you need to call her up and say, thank you for bringing me into this world. Thank you, Mom. Happy Mother's Day. That's the best you get for Mother's Day around here. Amen. <laughs> and how interesting it is that through this great pain that our Savior would enter the world. Now, the Catholics will teach you that Mary was sinless and therefore she could have had no pain during childbirth. But what does the Bible say? And I think this is an important point because the Bible will show that Mary was not sinless and therefore not to be worshipped. Luke 2.6, and speaking of the Virgin Mary, says, The days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And that word delivered means to be in travail. Jesus will use it later, talking about a woman in travail. 
And in Micah 5.3, speaking of the birth of our Savior, it says, until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. The Bible is clear that the blessed and highly favored Virgin Mary did labor to bring Jesus into the world, and therefore she had to be a sinner under this curse, just like all of us. We all need a Savior. Say, why are you bringing this up? Because I think it's a great point to challenge our Catholic friends on. Show them the Bible and say, well, wait a minute. Why are you venerating Mary when the Bible is clear that she had to labor to bring forth Jesus into the world? She must have been under the curse. Well, maybe that's a bit off target, but the Bible is clear. Giving birth would no longer be like God first intended it to be. There would be all kinds of pains during the pregnancy. A woman's body painfully transforms. She, She ends up walking around like a bloated penguin. There is severe pain in delivery. And there are the heartaches of raising children. But God is still good. John 16, 21. This is the verse I was referring to just a moment ago. Jesus said, And when a woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And I know that was true for at least three of our children. Um, Adrian will say, I don't know about the fourth one. I think she was done after that. But the, the, re, the remembrance of that is, is diminished a bit. Well, I didn't want to get hung up on, on birthing. Amen. <laughs> well, let's finish this verse. Actually, I wanted to finish through verse 16. That's not going to happen. But look at what it says here. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Lord, open our understanding that we might understand the Scriptures. This Hebrew word for desire is only used three times in our Old Testament. And I believe that some are misinterpreting this verse by trying to associate it with where it is used in the Song of Solomon. We read in Song of Solomon 7.10, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. And so there are some who are trying to say that the woman is going to be filled with desire for her husband. There's two problems with this thinking. One, the verse that I just cited in the Song of Solomon says that his desire is towards her and not the other way around, like Genesis 3.16 says. But second, why would it be a curse to desire your husband? Amen, wives. Thank you, Tiffany. My wife didn't even say amen. You were nodding. That's not a curse to desire your husband. That's a good thing. If the correct interpretation of Genesis 3.16 isn't romantic in nature, then what is the meaning here? I believe we get the answer in the very next chapter in Genesis 4 and verse 7. Cain, he's contemplating killing his brother Abel, and God shows up. And it says in Genesis 4, 7, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Now this is the same grammatical structure of Genesis 3.16. What is God saying to Cain here? 
If you will do right by me, God is saying, then Abel will submit to you because you are the firstborn. You have the birthright. You have the position of authority. Everybody understand that? So what we find in Genesis 4-7 is a power struggle. There's a power struggle taking place between Cain and Abel. Cain doesn't like it. We know what happens. And so when we get to Genesis 3.16, it's telling us there is going to be a power struggle between the husband and the wife. And this is why marriage can be very difficult at times. The Hebrew word for desire means to stretch out after. The root word means to run after or run over. In other words, the wife is now going to seek to take over her husband's position and usurp him. This is now the natural tendency of a wife. This is why the Bible has the verses it does on subjection. 1 Corinthians 14 verses 34 and 35. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is a shame for women to speak in the church. 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 14. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. 1 Peter 3, verses 5 and 6. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. And listen, I didn't put that in the Bible. God did. Now I know why so many people are not here today. Word got out. When Adam and Eve were created, there was a natural submission by the woman to her husband, both being in a perfect and sinless state. Before sin, she would have sweetly and with pleasure submitted to him with humility and meekness. We already covered before how God had this pre-fall as well, this submission. And before sin, he would have gently and kindly, with love and wisdom, led her. But sin has now made this yoke heavy. And the authority that he now exercises over her has become a point of contention. And ladies, it's okay if you say amen right there. Why this curse? Because she did not seek her husband's counsel or consent before taking of the fruit from the forbidden tree. And then she abused her power that God had given her. They were of great equality. And God, she had abused that that power by getting Adam into her sin. And so to me, this punishment makes sense. Now God says she will be ruled by Him. Her will is now to be under His authority and control. 
The husband is to be the leader. It doesn't mean she doesn't have an opinion. It doesn't mean you don't pray over decisions together. It doesn't mean she's not wise. It doesn't mean she's not spiritual. But in the end, the husband has the final say. Listen, if you would just get this, this would solve a lot of marriage problems. And, and, and I want you to understand, this is actually for the woman's protection. Remember earlier on in this chapter, we talked about how she was deceived because she had a greater desire for spirituality than he did. She needs her husband now to keep her in check. And we find this in the law. Numbers chapter 30, verses 6 through 8. And if she at all had an husband when she vowed or uttered aught out of her lips, wherewith she bound her soul, and her husband heard it, and held his peace at, at her in the day that he heard it, then her vow shall stand, and her bonds wherewith she bound her soul shall stand. But if her husband disallowed her on that day that he heard it, then he shall make her vow which she vowed, and that which she uttered with her lips, wherewith she bound her soul, of none effect. And the Lord shall forgive her. And then Numbers 30, 13, later on there, every vow, every binding oath to afflict, afflict the soul, her husband may establish it and her husband may make it void. You see, the husband was empowered to grant or deny her vow as he saw fit. Where there was once this equality, there is now further permission given to the husband and this is a curse. Sadly, many men abuse their position and they rule with cruelty and tyranny and cause her to cry or maybe buck even more against the curse because of how they're conducting themselves. Where there was once harmony in the marriage and a willful subjection, there's now going to be a power struggle that's taking place between a husband and wife there's now going to be complaining about Genesis 3.16, God's sentence and His plan for subjection. Matthew Henry wrote this, those wives who not only despise and disobey their husbands, but domineer over them, do not consider that they not only violate a divine law, but thwart a divine sentence. Now, let's be sure to note this. God is not putting enmity between the man and the woman as He did the serpent and the woman. He's not putting enmity between the two. And we also need to note that it is God's mercy in that He only calls a wife to be in subjection to her own husband, not a stranger, not another man. Amen, ladies. Why is that a good thing? Because what God is saying, ladies, is I want you in subjection to the man who loves you. At least he ought to love you if you entered into marriage, right? Amen. This verse is not to crush a wife. Now, we need to bring this into our homes. The fall has happened. The woman's natural proclivity will be to desire or dominate and control the marriage. The woman will have desires to control her husband. And guess what? He doesn't like it. Now there's a struggle taking place. She will try to usurp the headship of the man, and he's going to resent it, 
and push back. At least at first. Sadly, many men just finally get to the point where they sit back with Budweiser and say, oh, whatever. Amen. He just finally gets to the point where he's beat down by the woman enough that he says, fine, take the reins. I'll be sitting over here in the recliner watching Fox News. And I can tell you, the vast majority, I might could tell you this, every one of them, of those families who have left our church, it was because she was controlling the home. Ask my wife. But I can also tell you this on the flip side, some of you men are only here because your wife drags you here. I know sometimes when a wife isn't here, he ain't going to be here. (laughs) Before a husband will give up, he usually will fight for the respect of his position. And what we end up with outside of God's boundary is chauvinism by him and feminism by her. This is what it morphs into. She desires control, he fights back and usually ends up trampling over her sometimes in very severe ways in abuse. And we find this manifested in various ways in every marriage. Someone comes along and they say, I'm having difficulties in my marriage. Of course you are. God said it was going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Now that's not to depress you. And hopefully you're growing along the way and the trajectory's upward. And just to be clear here, marriage is not being disparaged. Marriage is honorable. Proverbs 18.25 tells us, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth the favor of the Lord. But still, there's going to be issues along the, why, uh, along the way. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28, But and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned, and if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned, nevertheless such shall have trouble in their flesh. What is Paul saying? Look, I'm not married. I'm digging it. It's helping me serve the Lord. You get married, that's fine. You're not doing anything wrong, but you're going to have problems. That's what he's saying. Why? Because of Genesis 3.16. This is why Solomon said in Proverbs 21.9, it is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. He said also in Proverbs 21.19, it's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. (laughs) It's because of Genesis 3.16 and the power struggle that will inevitably take place. Now, listen, the problem goes both ways. Men are just as often the problem. It's been rightly said that marriage can be the closest thing to heaven on earth by following God's Word, but marriage can be the closest thing to hell on earth when you get outside of God's principles. This is why I get up here and pound the pulpit and say to young people, do not be unequally yoked. Because it's going to be hard enough. I tell every young couple that comes for me for counsel, the first two years, you just need to stick it out. And sometimes a little bit after, of course. Why? You're waking up with somebody now. She's not all dolled up on Sunday morning for church, amen? She got the funky breath and the... Anyway. <laughs> that was a loud one, amen. Now, how do we escape this conflict within the institution of marriage? The answer is Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Why do we need those verses which tell us husbands love and wives submit? 
Why do we need that? Because of Genesis 3.16. I want you to understand this morning, Genesis 3.16 is the problem, but Ephesians 5 is the answer. Husbands, love your wife. Why are we told that? Because it is not the natural tendency of fallen man to love his wife. Not as the Bible says to do it. Amen. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Gave himself for it. Love her as you'd love your own self. No man ever yet had his own flesh. But nourisheth and cherisheth even as the Lord the church. So the Bible says husbands love your wife because that's not our natural tendency. But our tendency is to run roughshod over the weaker vessel. I don't like being called a weaker vessel. Listen, you give me a football team of men and a football team of women competing against each other, I'm betting on the men. WWF aside, or whatever the wrestling thing is today. When I was a kid, it was WWF. I don't know what it is today. Amazonian women aside. Just look at most of world history, even in places today that are without God. Women are second-class citizens and sometimes even worse. It amazes me that America is saying what it says about Christianity when this is the country where women have been elevated the highest. Why? Because we're, we, we had a Christian at one time. We had a Christian footing. And I believe if, if husbands are honest, then they will admit they have had to grow in their role as a husband. I have. So you see, Ephesians 5 will kill chauvinism. Wives, reverence and submit to your husbands. Her natural tendency is to control the marriage. But she needs to respect and submit to His authority as unto the Lord. This will counter her desire to dominate. Following Ephesians 5 will kill feminism. And I believe if, the, if our wives are honest this morning, they'll say, I've had to grow in my role as a wife. And I can tell you after 26 years of marriage, that when there have been problems in our marriage... It is because Adrian has stepped outside. <laughs> it is because one of us, or both of us, have stepped outside of God's plan for marriage. And why do we get away from God's plan? Because we're sinners. And you see, marriage problems really come down to selfish, just being selfish. A marriage works well when both the husband and wife will submit to God's word, and each of them will minister to each other's needs. So somebody comes for counseling, what can we say? Stop being selfish. Dismissed. Somebody says, well, I need a template for that. I, I need to be shown what that looks like. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that how our Lord treats us? Ephesians 4.32, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Both of you do the same, and you can experience marital bliss. Hey, listen, I'll, sit, I'll stand up here and tell you, I'm happily married. You say, even with a woman that can't do the bulletin right? Yeah. You know what? Here's the deal. Admit the problem is sin and go to the Bible for marriage counsel and advice. You don't need a bunch of seminars. Why do I say that? I have people come to me, hey, you know any good marriage seminars? Yeah, it's called the Bible. 
well, if we could just get to a marriage seminar, a marriage retreat, if we could get one, two, three, four, five, six, boom, the formula works, our marriage is happy. No, listen, you don't need all that stuff. You don't need seminars. You don't need Oprah. You don't need Dr. Phil. You don't need books like Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. You don't need that stuff. God has given the solution to our problem. It is the Word of God. Now follow it. And let the critics say what they will. And let the culture deride you because they will. I know this isn't popular today. If you can see under this shirt right now, I'm sweating. (laughs) I know what they're going to say. But go with the Bible. Now, you have to be in Christ if you want it to work. How in the world is that man going to love you like Christ when he doesn't even know Christ? How is she going to reverence and submit to you when she doesn't even know Christ? Some of you, maybe that's the problem. You need to get saved. And listen, if you're in Christ, you better be walking with Him because your old man's going to rear up. Because as for me and my flesh, there dwells no good thing. And that's when I'll put my fist down and say, I don't think so. And that's when she'll push my buttons just right. You women know how to push buttons, amen. Why? Because we're not in step with God. Without Christ, your marriage will be tumultuous. So get right with God. Let's pray.